Hi everyone, Mark Vandermoss here with you, and we are glad to be back once again with another episode of Radio Free Acton. Well, at the time of this recording, it has been about a week since the surprise announcement by Pope Benedict XVI that he will be resigning the papacy and that there will be a conclave held to select his successor in the coming weeks. Late last week, Michael Matheson Miller and Dr. Samuel Gregg joined together to discuss these events and to reflect on the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI and his papacy. And they also took some time to discuss the upcoming conclave and what it means for the future of the Roman Catholic Church. So without further ado, let me pass the conversation over to Michael Matheson Miller, who's joined by Dr. Samuel Gregg. We will divide this podcast into two parts today. We will talk about the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. Here now is Michael Matheson Miller and Dr. Samuel Gregg. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Matheson Miller. I'm here with Dr. Samuel Gregg, and we're uh, talking about some shocking news that came on Monday, which was the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. This is something that hasn't happened in 600 years, and so we're going to talk just a little bit about that and and hear what um, Sam thinks and some of the things that I think about this, Um, and just kind of what to make of this resignation. Sam, I mean, besides being shocked, what did you think? Well, the first thing I thought was this is an act of humility. It's a recognition on the part of a man who is, after all, 85 years old and has one of the most difficult and responsible jobs in the world to say that physically I really can't keep doing this anymore and the time has now come for me to step aside and to let someone else take on some of the responsibilities. But there's also a sense, I think, that uh, much of what Benedict set out to do has been achieved. And by that I mean several things. One is to establish this hermeneutic of continuity, which is very important in understanding the whole project of the Second Vatican Council and how it's supposed to be understood. And Benedict, I think, has made it very clear that the only way it can be understood is in continuity with everything else that went before it, that Vatican II just didn't drop out of the air and, and suddenly change everything. That's the first thing. I well, think can, you, can you actually, let's, let's talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, this is a very important part of his pontificate and a part of the way of interpreting uh, the Second Vatican Council, that where he he was not a cardinal, but he was there as an advisor. Talk a little bit about that. Well, he, of course, attended the Second Vatican Council as a theological advisor to Cardinal Frings, who's a very important German cardinal. And at the time, uh, Ratzinger was seen as one of the people who were interested in reforming the church. That doesn't mean what most people think it means, but basically he was trying to say that we need to reform the church by going back to the sources of the tradition. That's how you renew the church. You don't reform or renew the church by simply adapting to things that are going on around you. You reform or you renew the church by going back to the sources of, 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 of knowledge, of the truth, scripture, tradition, etc. <clears throat> of course, after the Second Vatican Council, that perception was, I would argue, disappeared more or less because it wasn't how, for example, many people in the media understood the council event. But that's certainly how he understood the council. And if you read the council documents, that's pretty much what it is. 
And it's very important that in one of the first things he did in 2005 after being elected Pope was he gave her an address to the Roman Curia. I think it was in December 2005. And he went through and explained what this continuity meant, this hermeneutic of continuity, that this is how you understand the Second Vatican Council. It's not a radical rupture with the past. It's a renewal of the Church, and it's in continuity with everything the Church has said and done and taught before that. And that's extremely important. I mean, of course, it was implicit to the teaching of Paul VI and John Paul II, but by formally spelling it out in that way, he effectively ended a debate that had been going on since the Second Vatican Council about this subject. And, of course, it makes sense, because if the Catholic Church had suddenly endured a rupture in 1965, then it wouldn't be the Catholic Church anymore. So that, I think, is really the one of the major achievements of the pontificate, uh, which has been done, I think. It's very hard for someone to get up now and say, well, I believe there was a significant rupture with, right. with the past. That's, that's simply impossible to do now. The other thing, I think, in terms of the, let's call it the intellectual agenda of this pontificate, was his attention to the power and importance of reason if we want to address the problem of religious fundamentalism on the one hand and nihilistic, secularist relativism on the other. Because he basically argues, especially in the four major addresses he gave in Regensburg, in Paris, in London, uh, and of course it's at the German Bundestag, he basically says that once right reason, natural law, is taken out of the picture, once we, and once we lose the understanding of God as divine reason, as logos, then you're basically left with, well, liberal Christianity or the wreck that we otherwise describe as the Church of England these days. Or on the other hand, you're left with uh, radical fundamentalism. Let's actually talk, let's talk a little bit about the Regensburg Address and mm-hmm. this kind of importance of reason which you've written a lot on, and I've talked about it quite a bit as well. I mean, there's a certain problem, right, that this idea, the modern idea of reason, and, you know, when he gave, when he did the Regensburg Address, I mean, it created a lot of response in, in the Islamic world, but really the address was more directed towards the West Correct. than it was towards, towards the Islamic world. Correct. And part of the critique, he said, is that we have, in our understanding of reason, we have limited reason to the empirical, right? We Correct. Have the, that reason is only, something is only rational if you can measure it. And the problem with that is that most of the fundamental things for human life and for politics, whether it's justice, truth, beauty, goodness, right, wrong, compassion, mercy, all, none of these things are empirical. It can't be measured. Right. How so, do you measure justice? Right. <laughs> How do you so, measure mercy? <laughs> right. And so like before he was pope, you know, he said that politics is essentially in the realm of reason. But when reason is reduced, when it's a truncated or a limited view of reason, it actually has this drastic and a terrible effect on our human experience and on politics. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, more about about this kind of limitation of reason and what Benedict says uh, in response to that. Well, it's no coincidence that the Greek of the Gospel of John uh, begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the Greek word for word is logos. And that was deliberate because it tells us something about God, that God is not this merely divine arbitrary will who just plays around with human beings in whatever way he wills. It tells us that the loving God is also a reasonable God and that because <clears throat> Christ became man, we have no even more now with certainty 
that we have been graced with this reason. Of course, it's not the equivalent of divine reason, but it has been marked upon us. And this is important because it tells us something about God's nature, but it also tells us something about how we're supposed to be organizing things like the realm of politics. It tells us that discussions of political matters can't be reduced to just feelings or emotions, or, on the other hand, people simply quoting from sacred scriptures and saying that that somehow is the end of the discussion, uh, full stop. So this is very important because we have lost in the West a sense that we can talk reasonably and discourse reasonably about complicated political questions and that there are right answers to some of these questions and that there are certain things that we know not just as a matter of faith but also of reason that politics and politicians and the state and government should never do simply because they're intrinsically damaging to human beings and we know this through obviously through revelation, but we also know this through the power of reason. Right. He, he actually said, you know, in, in his writings before Bennett, uh, in, before he was elected, uh, he, he talked about, about this importance of, of reason in that if we lose the sense of reason as a, br- a broad, classical, and Christian mm-hmm. understanding of reason, and we reduce it to the empirical, then ultimately politics, because you can't talk about justice— ultimately politics gets reduced to power or in our time consensus and he said very clearly but there are some values that no majority is entitled to annul correct you cannot for example in the example he gives you cannot say that some people don't have a right to life mm-hmm. and i think if you if we look at a lot of the problems in in modern secular society they go back to this fundamental um mistaken idea, a reductionist, a a truncated idea Mm -hmm. of reason. Mm -hmm. And it's why you see in debates, for example, today when people are debating controversial issues, they'll always quote science, as if science is the deciding factor that tells us that we ought to do this rather than that. Well, science can tell us how certain things work, why certain things behave in, in, in certain ways, but it can't tell us whether we ought to do A, rather than B. It just provides us with some of the information we need to make those types of decisions. And Benedict, I think, has really identified this crisis of reason as not just the crisis of the Islamic world, because they have an enormous problem in this this area, and I think people like uh, Bob Riley in his book, The Closing of the Islamic Mind, has said a lot of very interesting things about this. But it's a problem in the West, and I don't think it's a mistake that Benedict has gone to places like the German Bundestag, uh, he's talked to the French intellectual world in Paris, or that he gave his address in Regensburg uh, in, the, in the setting of the university. In fact, the speech is, talk, is, is about the nature of the university. And he gave his address in London, of course, in Westminster Hall, which was significant because why? Well, it's the, it's the place where uh, English parliamentary democracy developed, but it's also the place where Thomas More was put on trial for his life. So... I think it's all quite deliberate what Benedict has been doing in terms of this agenda of restoring reason to its proper place in both theological discussion when it comes to dealing with the problem of liberal Christianity, which is a problem, and also, but also the problem of fundamentalism, which doesn't just appear in the, uh, in the Islamic world. It appears in other parts of the world and even in some forms of Christianity too. Right. I mean, uh, this... It could take us down the road to the dictatorship of relativism, but let, let me actually stop for a second and say, you know what I think is interesting? It, one of the ways I've, I sometimes 
look at how I've understood how Benedict does things is that he first kind of takes things on their own terms. And mm-hmm. so he shows that this scientism, that this reductionist reason that something is only rational if it's empirical doesn't actually work on its own terms, right? I mean, Correct. you can't prove empirically that reason is only limited to the empirical. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things I think that's so important and also both inspiring as a model of how to think as a theologian is that he first takes it on his own terms, but then he says, okay, what's the solution? And if you look at his writing, he says, well, reason needs to be rehabilitated by faith. And interestingly, he says it was the martyrs of the 20th century standing up against the lies of totalitarianism that gave a witness to this faith and that faith, he says, leads to a convalescence of reason. Correct. And, and I think it's it's quite beautiful, right, that he doesn't just make an intellectual argument, but then goes to, I mean, intellectual argument, say, on its own terms, you know, then takes it further and intellectually um, delves into, well, how do you resolve this problem? And it's, it's ultimately, Correct. it's by faith. Correct. And and faith, of course, is not as a John Paul II wrote in Fidesz Ratio, faith right. is not an act of unreason. Exactly. He says faith is, as Augustine says, in a way an act of reason. Mm-hmm. And this is very important because uh, I think you're right, in the 20th century, faith and reason particularly have been seen as opposed to one another. And what Benedict, I think, has tried to say is that if you have faith in the Christian God, in Jesus Christ, in the Logos, who is also Caritas, who is also divine justice, but who is all these things at the same time, if you have faith in this God revealed in this way and described using these words, then suddenly reason is much more significant than you than you hitherto thought. And it's broad. Correct. I mean, it's, it, this is the this is that there's moral reasoning. There's it's not a limited understanding of reason. I think you hit on something important that we oftentimes think, oh, well, faith and reason are opposed. But actually, the Christian understanding of reason is a much richer broader and coherent Correct. understanding of reason. Right. And that's, it's no mistake that so many of the good things that we associate with, let's call it Western civilization, things like constitutionally limited government, things like commerce, things like uh, market economies, things like the rule of law, things like uh, notions of that there are certain things that may never be done to human beings. These, these, all these institutions and perspectives and principles, it's not a mistake that they all emerge around about the same time in what we should unashamedly call Western civilization. And but science. It, of course. And, and science. Science itself. Right. I but, mean, the sciences, the, most of the foundational premises on which we, the modern sciences operate today, I mean, partly it comes from the Greeks, but a lot of it was formalized by people like Albertus Magnus, right. who was Aquinas's teacher, professor, uh, in the medieval period. So the notion that the medieval period is this <laughs> this great dark ages is simply nonsensical. Well, you know, it, is you just in this one little conversation, we can see, I mean, we're going into like all these questions of truth and reason in the dark ages. And so I think we need to have a couple more of these conversations. But let's let's bring it back here to Benedict's resignation. And, and you said humility. And, and I, I saw, you and I have talked about this, and I, I saw kind of three things that stood out humility um to you to use the word of dallas willard this is this is not his kingdom it's god's kingdom he recognizes that 
I think too, I, I would say he has a magnanimous, uh, a, a magnanimous soul. I mean, a great soul. He, he, he is, he's able to recognize when he did, he didn't really want to be the Pope. And no one wants to be right. Pope. Exactly. <laughs> no one in their right I mind. Think so. Yeah. No one in their right mind. But uh, he didn't want to be the Pope when he saw it coming. He then he accepted it. He took it on. He dealt with this great honor and this challenge. And he dealt with, it, I think, courageously and, and, and brilliantly. But then he came to the realization that I am not fit at this point with my strength and my age to to steer the bark of Peter. And then I also think um, a certain a prudence, prudence in that sense of seeing the world as it is and acting accordingly. And you talked about this. I mean, he's he's 85 years old to be 86 in April. The time that bishops resign is when they're 75. Correct. So he's 10 years older than than, you know, the the age when bishops resign. And and I think two other things ca- came to mind, but I'd like to talk about one of them. That is the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he and John Paul II have been talking very importantly about the new evangelization. And I think in, in addition to all his work on reason, his encyclical on Deus Caritas Est, his encyclical on, on hope, Space Salvi, he really, along with John Paul II, set the intellectual and theological framework for a new evangelization. Correct. I and think I think that's true. And may, his resignation, I think, has to do partially with realizing that there needs to be a pope who can carry this out. What do you think? I uh, know. I think that's 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 exactly right because the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and here I'm really referring to the the teaching of both right, pontificates, right. have essentially given definitive form to how we need to understand the Second Vatican Council, and that's very important because there are all sorts of debates that were going on about that, but really the case is now closed. And that's important because now it means that the church can turn to the modern world, which we hear so much about in the documents of Vatican II, particularly right. Gaudium et Spes. And, we, and, and it can evangelize that modern world, which, as Gaudium et Spes says, is there's lots of good things about that modern world, but there's also some deeply problematic aspects of that modern world as well. But by resigning now, it's almost a way of saying the framework is in place the in- correct interpretive lens for understanding the council is now in place. It's now time for someone else, maybe younger, someone with maybe different skill sets, but who obviously is committed to the same vision of the church, to take it forward so that the world can be uh, newly evangelized. Because when you're 85 years old, you're just not in a position to do things that a 68-year-old or a 60-year-old is able to do. So I think that's that's part of what's... Uh, What's going on? But it's also, you know, sometimes it comes to the point where you say, now is my time to step off the stage. And as we all know, in the secular world, politicians, CEOs, religious leaders, and even other religious leaders have enormous difficulty saying, now is the time for me to step back. More often than not, they either either are carried out in a box or they're forced out. Right. I think, you know, sometimes you see people like Piers Morgan saying, you know, I don't what's going on behind it? And I said, well, I think it's basically what he told us. I don't think there's a, you know, a, a scandal going on. I think it's quite he, he gave us his reasons. And if you look at how he said, you know, in his in his speech where he told the cardinals that he was resigning, he's very clear. I think why and and the, the reasons why. And also, I think some of those hints to 
of the new evangelization that you talked about. I think another, just one last thing I would say in this regard is it's very important that he used the phrase in, use, in full freedom, right. using my free will. And that's important because w- as people live longer, it's clear that their mental abilities, their capacity to make choices, their capacity to reason aren't the same as when they're 40 years old. Right, and it could have been the case that exactly. he could be in- incapacitated and then he would not have been able Correct. to resign in full Correct. freedom. Correct. So that's, that's very important because that's part of the act of humility in saying, uh, I'm okay for the moment, but I might not be in one year's time or two years' time. And so now is the time to do this while I can do it in full freedom so that there's no delay in moving forward with what the church needs to do with the new evangelization. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. So this is Michael Matheson-Miller and Samuel Gregg uh, talking here about the resignation, the shocking news of the resignation of Benedict XVI, and also the legacy that he leaves for the church and the foundation for the new evangelization. Thanks so much for listening.